Welcome to RPG Reanimators, a podcast for GMs where we dissect horror scenarios and offer our experiences and advice to reanimate it at the table. I'm Alex. I'm Lex. I'm Nathan. And I'm Matt. So this time, we're joined by a guest, Matthew Sanderson. Matt is an experienced author who has written for Call of Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu, Vampire the Masquerade, and more. He's the host of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias podcast and has run a number of fan-favorite scenarios on Into the Darkness. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Hey, thank you for having me. So today, let's see what's on the slab. The case report for this session is the Saturnine Chalice which is a scenario written by Matthew Sanderson himself for Call of Cthulhu 70 in the book Dead Light and Other Dark Turns. In this scenario, investigators become stranded on a rural road, but luckily a nearby mansion holds the hope of a quick repair, as well as puzzling mysteries and a dark secret. As with any dissection, we'll be discussing all the gross innards of the scenario, so from this point on, there will be spoilers. If you're interested in playing this scenario, please stop here and share this episode with your GM so they can listen and consider running this for your group. We'll also include links for where you can purchase a copy of this scenario for yourself in the show notes of this episode. Now, with that out of the way, let's begin our dissection. So, Matt, could you actually tell us what's going on? Ooh, in, a, in a very high level overview, or would you want a full blown spoiler report, or kind of the full blown oh. spoiler? Right, uh, going back in time, then. So going back, as they say, to the point where it all began, uh, we have the lovely Wayland family. Um, Augustus Wayland and Evangeline Wayland had a daughter, Veronica. Except this killed poor Evangeline; she died in childbirth, and Augustus is left with this feeling of loss and regret and. He's mourning for for a long, long time. And it also puts a dent in his faith as well. Um, He's hoping that there is some kind of afterlife where he can can be reunited with his wife again. And slowly, Veronica grows up. um, She goes to university. And this gives Augustus the chance to indulge. He's been an occultist for for years. And it gives him the chance to indulge in this, uh, performing this operation, this Abramelian operation, as outlined in the the book with a wonderfully long title, The Book of the Sacred Magic, Magic of Abramel and the Mage. I try saying that after you had a few shots in uh, in rapid succession. And what he wants from this is to gain communication and conversation with this holy guardian angel. And that will hopefully prove to him that there is some kind of afterlife, there is a heaven, and he will be reunited with his wife again. And that, that's the core of what his motivation is. There is no real bad guy in this scenario in that sense on a human level. There's no cultist with some grand diabolical plan. It's a very human person with a very human want that they want satisfying. Except like any bad workman, he blames his tools. Because when he performs this operation, his holy guardian angel doesn't turn up. So he goes looking for anything that can help him, whether it be an older copy of the book that he believes might have more accurate um, instructions on how to call this angel down to him or any tools that he can use. And he spreads his net far and wide. And who does he happen to contact? A fellow by the name of Lester Goodman. Here's this this particular want that's gone out over the grapevine. Uh, Goodman happens to be an avatar of Nalapatep and thinks, I can have some fun with this. So sends him an older copy of the book. And also sends him a lamp, 
uh, which part of the operation is you have to um, do lots of incense burning and lots of prayer over a specially constructed altar. And the lamp is supposed to hold the, uh, the incense while you burn it. And of course, he takes it in thinking, fine, the main thing I want is the book, but I'll take the lamp anyway. He performs the ritual over an 18-month period. And consequently, the lamp activates. And the lamp, for every time that it's lit, sucks a magic point out of you. And when it accumulates a horrendous number of magic points, in this um, in this instance, keyed directly to the number of times it would have had to have been lit to get to a particular point in the in the scenario, kind of the eve of when he's about to call forth his holy guardian angel, it activates and promptly calls down a creature from the court of Azathoth that resembles an angel. It's this ball of light with these wings of uh, of light that surround it. And it comes forth to him and says, okay, well, in more grandiose terms, okay, I'm here, what do you want? And he, of course, wants to he wants to see the face of God. He wants to see proof that the afterlife exists and, that, and he will be reunited with his wife. And the angel interprets this as, okay, come with me back to the court of Azathoth. Uh, takes his consciousness, removes it from his body, leaving the uh, the dead husk behind, whisks him across the universe, and poor Augustus is now circling the court, screaming in this mad, insane ball of essence that will be um, insane forevermore. Should have been more specific. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. If you're gonna, if you're going to make uh, deals or bargains with entities from beyond time and space, then you should really watch the wording. <laughs> and from what I understand, Matt, there's multiple layers of tragedy, for 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 this estate because oh, um, yes. his daughter comes back right veronica that's right so when when veronica comes back to the estate and when after hearing that her father's dead because the, the servants go away they come back and find the body and they alert veronica she believes that this is murder that it, he was a healthy individual he couldn't have just died of a heart attack like the medical examiner uh, concludes so going through all his notes and seeing what he was doing he believes that something has been called that is designed to kill him. This is effectively like an assassination that she believes this ritual that she has been, that he has performed has been tampered with to get to the end where Augustus is dead. But she believes being an occultist that has followed in his footsteps, that she has the power and tools to restrain whatever entity turns up, whether it be malevolent or not, and then prove that someone was out to get her father. So she performs a ritual, does exactly the same thing. The same angel comes down, but she's put precautions in place where she has turned the house effectively into a prison. Uh, this is where the, uh, the scenario gets its title, with um, Saturn or Saturnine uh, being an old, very old-fashioned coinish term for, for lead poisoning. So the lead poison chalice of this whole scenario is that, sure, the, the angel's turned up, but it's stuck in this prison after all, and it can't leave. And that Veronica attempts to question it and say, okay, why did you kill my dad? Uh, things go a bit south when you have an entity that's per- effectively pointed a gun at and say, oi, tell me the answer, uh, answers all these questions. It, it <laughs> Like a human, he gets a bit pissed off and promptly tries to kill Veronica or they suck the information out of her head that would tell her everything about what's going on. But she kills herself before it can take the memories of what's holding, the, uh, holding it in the prison. So... You then have a situation where this thing is stuck in this house. It doesn't know what is keeping it here. 
and the only attempts that it's had to try and find what's going on have completely failed because it also kills the servants when they return and they know nothing about the occult they don't know anything about veronica's plans they were just meat sacks so they're dead in the basement there um, you've got veronica who's dead upstairs and this thing wondering okay i really hate these pesky humans now how can i manipulate <laughs> them to get um so i can get out of this house and its its main shtick, its main power is that it can alter perception. It can alter what people feel, what they can see, what they can smell, any sensory input it can mess with. Mm. So everything that you are potentially told as soon as you get into that house may not be, may not not be true. And it believes if it can contrive a series of events based on the knowledge that it's sucked out of uh, of Veronica, out of the servants, etc., that it can appeal to something in a basic human nature that will say, I've got to help what I think are these people trapped in this house. But in reality, they are helping this thing escape and go back to the court of Azathoth. Or to escape and take its revenge on or any and all humanity it can get its hands on when it leaves the house. And then you have your poor investigators, which are just happen to be wandering by. For whatever reason, whatever group they are, find themselves with a faulty fuel gauge and they've just stopped on the outskirts of the range of influence of this thing. So even though it's stuck in the house, the way that I envisioned it is very much like a cage that this thing can extend its arms through the bars to a certain range and therefore it can manipulate things around the grounds of the house and out onto the road. And you just happen to have the poor investigators just land right on the edge of its sphere of influence. And then the scenario begins. What a setup. That's a beautiful setup. And uh, it was quite the, the Pyrrhic victory that Veronica got because she sacrificed herself in order to keep this thing caged. And there's so many NPCs, but really there's just one because they're all simulacrums. Uh, and from my understanding of the reading, they're, they're, they're pretty valuable because they only know so much, which is a great uh, detail that you added. I know with uh, their knowledge of electricity or what alcohol tastes like. So could you speak to us about this, uh, these fragments of these NPCs? Yeah, sure. Uh, as you said, one of the things that I was very, uh, very insistent on putting into the write-up was that they are fallible. Because if you have an entity or an adversary which is completely omnipotent, completely flawless in their execution of their plan, you're playing something by the numbers and it's going to have the same result every time. And that's boring. As a, as a GM that you want when you're going, potentially going to run this multiple times over, you want something to give players hints that there's something that's not right, that they might be, they might be involved in something where they realise that not everything is as it seems. And I say, if it's a flawless plan, it's going to go the same every time. You add that little hint of fallibility and it will play out very differently every time, which makes your life as the GM a lot more satisfying when you play it at the table. I ran this in playtest probably a, a good dozen times or more. And I don't think any single scenario, any single instance went the same way twice. And that's exactly what I want in something that I've written. Yeah. I do have a question about these NPCs. Is to your mind, whenever writing them, are they just kind of echoes? Are they something like ghosts? Or do they have this kind of very limited cognizance to act sort of with limited independence and individuality? 
I was really, in reading it, I was imagining this formless one would essentially use them kind of like little finger puppets on Plato's wall and just watch them repeatedly die to this thing and just keep tormenting them to sort of vent its frustrations as like elder god finger puppets. But curious your thoughts on it. Yeah, the, the way I vision them, they're almost like echoes or reflections because they're fragments of memories from other people. So the only one single person that it has specific memories wholesale from is Jeremiah Linwood, the butler, because he was completely, um, completely drained. And then Rosemary, his wife, was driven insane. Um, she saw her sole visions of the court of Azoth, ripped her own eyes out, etc. So it's mainly going off Jeremiah's lim uh, mem memories as the most complete set. Now, he has been in the household ever since Veronica was born. And before then, he has served Augustus. So he knows everyone quite intimately in the family. So he's got some very concrete memories of everyone's personality, how they would act and so on. But they are purely from his perspective. So he's not going to have the depth of what he would, um, for instance, what Veronica would do in her in her private life, not have um, knowledge of what Augustus does in the time that he wants to himself. And likewise, what they what they did to perform the Abramelin operation, that he's only seeing what the almost like the public face of what goes on in that family. So even then, while it's still a complete enough picture to be able to mirror or to replicate those people, it's not complete. So it doesn't have the depth to make them feel like they're complete people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're very much almost I see them as two dimensional ghosts in that sense that you've got an image of who they are. You know how they're acting, but there's something that's missing. There's that depth, which is not not there. So do you think, well, first of all, is that why Jeremiah meets so many nasty ends throughout? Is <laughs> he, he tends to be the guide and I, I think he gets mauled at least twice in the writing. Uh, he's he's unfortunate yeah i mean um that's one thing i know of when i've played it through i don't um, have it specifically wholeheartedly focusing on him but i've had that he's a good a good point of contact for the pcs he's usually mm -hmm. the first npc that they meet if they go through the front door although i know one one bunch that played a, gun, uh, a group of bank robbers on the run that uh came into um came into the estate as one of the playtest groups uh, they didn't go through the front door. They went through the uh, round the back of the house, stormed into the kitchen with with uh, guns drawn, and were like, "Everyone to the front of the house now!" And God, they met Rosemary first, and that that went very differently, taking it as a hostage situa uh, situation. <laughs> but he's the as he's a servant. He's there to uh, to make the guests feel at home, to cater to their needs. So because he's the person that you would see the uh, see the most, it makes logical sense for him to be the one that is on the receiving end of a lot of these. Uh, grisly deaths that he can potentially be put through again and again and again. But uh, you know, Rosemary's had a few of those herself when I've when I've run the scenario. I've had her uh, beaten up against the wall, like uh, describing it like a train hits her uh, as Evangeline's ghost appears through the room at very high speed, splatters her against one wall, bits of uh, gore go everywhere. It's like an eyeball lands on one PC's shoulder. That really <laughs> hammer it home how grisly and uh, gory this is. And then have it happen again or something to a variant effect later in another room. Uh, one thing I love about this scenario is uh, the, the shapeless one, how it's almost the challenge for the GM because the, the GM needs to balance, oh, I can't just kill them because that the shapeless one needs the information from the investigators to get out. And I can't just drive them insane using these um, 
uh, manifestations of Evangeline. Mm -hmm. So it's really a delicate balance that the shapeless one has to use. Yeah, there's there's definitely a point where the gloves come off. Because once it the way I've played it before is once it realizes it nor once it knows what it needs to do to get out. And usually that's because the PCs vocalize it themselves, where they've read the diaries upstairs or they've uh, put it together themselves that, hey, we need to get these uh, four items around the house that form the boundaries of this ward and bring it together so it has nowhere else to go, but physically enclosing it in a negative space. That will banish it. At that point, because it can see and hear everything they've said, it goes, thanks. I now know what to do if you because you're sounding like you're going to turn hostile. I know exactly what the next group of investigators that come here need to do. So I can manipulate them straight to doing that rather than having to pussyfoot around and have this this game going. At that point, it thinks they're expendable. So it can just full on go uh, go bad guy on the PCs. Besides the shapeless one, are there any other threats that uh, can can harry the investigators? Um, not really other threats in the house, because everything is essentially the results of the shapeless one's mm -hmm. manifestations of manipulating their senses. It can do quite a lot, like make barriers. It can mm -hmm. manifest the, the, the ghost of Evangeline to just physically hurt them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, its primary force initially from the kind of the early parts of the scenario, I think if, if you think like the arrival of the house, the initial exploration and such, those first opening acts, then the main threat or the main source of antagonism comes from that manifestation of Evangeline, what they believe is this demonic uh, kind of ghostly figure that uh, goes through walls, screams, does the occasional jump scare and so forth, and can physically attack them by trying to suck their memories out of the, out of the PCs which gives a little hint of what this thing can do if you meet it up close and personal in its own form. Because it's Have trying to used... maintain that uh, that level of um, that level of deception, that it's always acting by proxy, acting via these illusions that it creates. I actually didn't catch that in the writing. Have you ever had this thing suck memories out of investigators before and then repurpose that for later? I really like that aspect. I... Um... I, I have it's one of the set encounters that if anyone goes into the uh the pantry after they see the rat jump out of the pot and then uh, scuttle across the kitchen floor and they go into the into the pantry its default attack is that it will use the steel memory ability on a pc at that point so that's the first taste that you get of what this thing can do if you meet it in per in person later on and I always have great fun of uh, saying to the players, so th those earliest memories you have, like being, um, you'll in fact, your very first memory, like when maybe you learned to talk, maybe when you were a child looking up at your mother's eyes, gone. There's just this void in your memory now where that once was, and you realise there is this gaping hole in your mind, and consequently alter your character sheet accordingly. Oh, that sounds like a great opportunity to have someone's treasured item completely backfire on them. That like they may mention they had the lucky pocket watch from their grandfather. And it's like, you have this watch. It's just there. You don't know why you're keeping such an old thing around with you. Mm -hmm. Throw it out. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd originally had it in the the original draft of what I sent to uh, to Calcium to say that that, uh, that memory loss was a permanent thing. So they they could never get those memories back. But uh, Mike took the kind of view, I think, or I'm not sure it was Mike or Lynn who did the uh, the main editing on the scenario. Uh, 
they took the more kinder approach and said, no, you can get it back over time. And I thought, no, I don't know. This should have been ripped out wholesale and been <laughs> gone. <laughs> I see that there is an actual intelligence drain based on that power too. So you're actually losing brain power as uh, as this creature sucks out the memories. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And if it starts to drain someone with a higher int than it has, it also then steals that stat. So it increases its own intelligence as it then gets more. It's very neat. So the um the background behind what this what this creature is, um, I actually took inspiration from the fungi from Yogoth, uh, the uh, the sonnet cycle that Lovecraft wrote, in particular four lines in the Azathoth uh, sonnet, which says, "Here the vast Lord of all in darkness muttered things he had dreamt but could not understand, while near him shapeless bat things flopped and fluttered in idiot vortices that ray streams fanned." These things are almost personifications or manifestations of the thoughts of the blind idiot god as it babbles these things out into the void they become sentience and they become these things that flop and flat uh, flutter around it almost like speech bubbles that have turned into their own beings and now join the court that keep their keeps their creator quiet and hopefully a slumber forever but to uh, to gain their own intelligence they are capable of sucking because of being a blind idiot god they can suck intelligence from those that are smarter than it and therefore improve their own intelligence. That's one thing I liked about the way this is written is you explicitly say that this creature is roughly human intelligence. That's a lot easier for a new keeper to approach rather than trying to be this is an unknowable genius creature like the Mego or something. Now inhabit that, become, do what they would do. <laughs> that's it's a tough, tough sell. It's more relatable, and again, sells the uh, sells the the premise that it can be fallible. All right, very nice. Now that we have all these NPCs set up, and we have the potential threats and what the shapeless one can do, could you describe the estate itself? Like, what's the playground that all these players are going to be running around in? Sure. This is one thing I was very lucky to find online. The the Abramelin operation has a very set criteria of instructions laid down to say what the environment looks like when you perform this, whether it's performed in an urban setting or whether it's performed in a rural setting. So I went with the rural angle because I thought it's, it's easy to have an isolated estate where none of this would be found rather than having it as, oh, that one penthouse or building in the city that no one's gone to, that seems a bit odd. Yeah, have it somewhere more more isolated really fits into the into the premise of the story. And as I said, the, the book lays down very specific instructions of what orientation you have to have the rooms so that you can see the sunrise in one window set in another and that one one particular room has to be connected with another room. And just by chance... Um, I was looking around for floor plans online. And I found one room, but the only thing I had to do with it was add a single window into one wall and went, this is perfect. And I just turned the orientation of the building around because that's not um, that's not set in stone. And boom, here's the floor plan. So it is a uh, it is a real building with a couple of minor changes on it. But yeah, it's a, I think it's actually a, um, listed as a historic building down in the south of the US. So I said that each room has a particular encounter or use in the scenario. So there are certain things you'll find in there, like the library has all its books. It has one of the wards is in that room. So you have a list describing the room, and then you have events that can happen in that room as well. 
And the same effectively for the outside. You've got the grounds, which are comprised of the uh, the barn, the converted barn, which is now the garage, the well, one of my personal favourites because there have been some hilarious moments uh, take place there. And the uh, the mausoleum, which has, if people decide to go uh, full on grave robbing, they can potentially find, hmm, something's not uh, not right here. Why is there, why is there one body in here? But yeah, each each one had to uh, fulfil a like a set piece moment in the scenario. So there weren't any rooms that were particularly dull or wasted space. Maybe with the exception of the. Uh, the servants' washroom at the back of the building, where there wasn't really anything that you could put in there. That's probably the one safe room in the house. It's like the equivalent of free parking on a monopoly board. <laughs> Nothing bad's going to happen in there. <laughs> could you talk a little bit more about the Evermelon uh, whole ritual? Like, what? Where'd that come from? Well, <laughs> that's a that's a topic of debate. Whether you, it depends <laughs> on which version you believe. Uh, the book was at least came into public public view around the turn of the 20th century when Samuel McGregor Mathers published the book, the, uh, the book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, which at the time he was a member of the Golden Dawn, uh, became very uh, influential amongst their other members. Crowley, in particular, picked it up and was um, believed, uh, believed very heavily in it and used a lot of the influence and style in that book when he was later going on to build his uh, magical system of Thelema. The book has in itself, it's divided up into three parts. At least the initial printing of the book is divided up into three parts. You've got the beginning of the book is essentially the letter that was contained with everything else that was bundled together behind it. Think of it almost like the um, the Call of Cthulhu. This would be uh, the note pinned on the top that says... Um, Anyone who's re, uh, looking at the executor of my estate that's looking at this, burn it. But in this case, it's more of a, uh, a friendly note that says, "Hey, Lamac, this is fine. Um, this is going to be the basis of your inheritance. Uh, this is me um, who has gone out to find all this information for you. This veritable and sacred magic, and I found it with this fellow called Abramel in the Mage who uh, lived in Egypt. And this is all the sacred magic that's been passed down through the ages. But beware that you can only." want to invoke the ho a holy guardian angel and learn the ability from it of how to command demons so that they only have so they don't have a negative impact upon your life mm -hmm. and they can give you other powers but you're only supposed to use them when you need it and in the service of others you start to use mm -hmm. any of this for personal gain and the powers are going to be taken away from you and it then proceeds in the second part of the book to say these are the preparations you need to make. This is the very lengthy process you have to go through. Um, in the, the original copy, it says six months. So the the, Mag, the, the Mathers version, it says six months. Sure. And then it finishes off with book three of, here's all the magic squares that you need to write to be able to command all these demons so they don't have a negative impact in your life. The only problem that a load of those magic squares are incomplete. So there, there are just plenty of blanks in the book. Uh, you cut forward then to the late 20th century and a revised version of the book came out that claimed to have found older copies of the book, either in New High German or the original Hebrew, and said, oh, yeah, there, there are mistranslations here. It didn't say six months, it meant 18 months. And here's a whole nother book that fits between books one and two, uh, between books one and two to become the true book two, which has more details about the spells it will give you and the abilities that the angel will give you so that you can perform good things for the people around you. And it then just elaborates and corrects a few bits here and there. 
I, I read that book advanced cover. player guide sort of situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah play, player's handbook volume two. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I read both versions of the of the book uh, front to back, so cover to cover while uh, while in preparation for this scenario. Yeah, that's so, that must have been an undertaking. It was because uh, there is a lot of detail in there about how you prepare the particular the altar room as well. So all the details that I provided in there are, are as accurate to the to the letter that you would find that for a ritual. If someone had performed it in real life and stuck to the criteria in that book, this is what you would find up until the point where they had called forth the angel or the angel was supposed to appear. Right. I was, I was really intrigued with that section in the book that mentioned the room that had it was full of sand and said, like, if mm -hmm. they had progressed to the next phase, this would have been used. But as it is, it's just this bizarre room that they can encounter. Yep, exactly that. But it's it's all ready for them to use the wand. And that's where you would then inscribe the magic squares in the sand and call forth the demon to appear in the air before it. But that would have all happened after the communication and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. But because that never happens, then the room is is there perpetually waiting to be used and never been touched. Hmm. Are the uh, one of the big aspects of this is the Kamiya, if I'm saying that even remotely yeah. correctly. That's that right. Are there are those from the original, the four north, south, east, west kind of artifacts? I don't know what you'd call yeah, the, them exactly. The, the I, I referred to them as wards. And so yeah, each of those this again dives off into another aspect of occultism. It's not it's not explicitly the magic squares which are laid out in the Book of Abramelin, because magic squares are used in other magic systems beyond beyond that. So each each magic square is associated with a particular planet, and each planet has a particular correspondence, a particular theme that it draws upon. Say Saturn is one of its correspondences is warding, binding, barriers, etc. So you then have different materials that align with different planets as well, and that's how you get back to lead with how uh, the wards are constructed out of that particular metal. So it all revolves back around this uh, concept of uh, warding and um, imprisoning this entity right so we have the stage set we have our npcs we have the setting we have the threats are there any key events that you always want to hit when you run this scenario matt yeah a lot of them are laid out in the in the text are the main ones that came out of playtesting so when i set this up originally i had the I say the stage set, I do the description of the house, I do the description of um, everything they might find in there or the, and the people. But then the key events are ones that came mainly out of uh, mainly out of playtesting the scenario. So things like um, I always try to get the uh, someone if they're going through the front door, which happens a good 99 times out of 100. Apart from the one aforementioned one where they storm in through the back door with a Tommy yeah. gun. They go in through the front door. Someone's going to notice the fact that the chandelier there 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 are lines that are broken. The power uh, the power cords are supposed to be incapable of making electricity flow, but they're still lit. So that's immediately a hang on a minute. Something's a little bit weird here. And then likewise, when you have uh, we'll just get some drinks for you, sir. And the uh, the maid comes in with oh, what's what, what what would you like to drink there, sir or madam? And the minute anyone mentions alcohol, it's what what don't quite understand as so I, I deliberately put in there that a, a alcohol isn't um is banned during the performing of the abramelin operation anyway 
So that's why there's none in the house. That I thought, well, why wouldn't maybe one of maybe Jeremiah's a teetotaler and has never experienced alcohol? He's never tasted it. He has no idea what this thing is. So likewise, then the port, uh, the shapeless one also has no idea. So you're then putting that there's something weird about the people in there as well as the house around. And riffing, uh, we're stepping back a little bit before that. As they approach the house, I'll always um, mention in the description that there's uh, that you can see obviously the lights on in a couple of rooms. There's no smoke coming out of the chimney, but refer to it very much in passing. But then also drop in when they then get inside the house. Hey, there's a roaring fire in the fireplace in the lounge, and then wait to see how many people say. But you said there was no smoke coming out of the chimney, and said, "Yeah, correct. There isn't." I like to leave that uh, that little revelation as a penny drop for the players to put uh, put two and two together, rather than me explicitly tell them, "Look, I said this earlier. Didn't you understand?" <laughs> oh, that's yeah. great! Like when things don't connect. I loved all the little bits like that and reading through it. I think um, just in terms of rereading it in preparation for this, I really want to just take the map and potentially draw out where the manifestations are because in my, or I was just a player in it, uh, but there were several manifestations that we didn't encounter that I want to make sure I hit next time. Like I love in the lounge that there's the smoldering cigar that doesn't ever get any shorter. And so just to leave that there, uh, my favorite that it, I, I completely missed it my first read through was that the weather in the backgrounds of the portraits is exactly the weather that is outside. So it may be sunny. And then when the blizzard hits, then that could be just in the full background of it. I thought that was such a weird detail that you can just note again in passing until players start going, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, they don't realize until it's too late. Mm. That one's one that I wish people would pay more attention to. I, I rarely get uh, the opportunity to use the paintings. But I think the only painting that anyone's ever really taken any explicit detail on besides the ones in the lounge is the seraphim at the top of the stairs. Everyone else just goes, oh, yeah, lots of landscapes. That's nice. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my personal favorite events is Lester Goodman arriving for dinner. That is <laughs> just a Lester. fantastic moment. <laughs> so yes. in the in the event, right, Lester Goodman shows up. Jeremiah says, oh, hey, Mr. Goodman, thank you for coming over. He sits down, introduces himself, and then there's another knock at the door. Once again, it's Lester Goodman. And every npc acts like nothing is wrong and when you see the players faces it is brilliant <laughs> that's definitely the point that that's i like count a turning like, point yeah that's when the madness really happens like that's the third act so you need to get the fuck out of here yeah that that's definitely i i key that moment to the point where i want to escalate it towards building towards a conclusion because yeah. the weirdness at this point is it's right in your face you can't ignore it there's no denying it it's right in front of you and all 20 copies are saying hey how are you doing it's time to act yes yeah. <laughs> which is and, interesting because evangeline seems like such a it's an obvious threat and she's this haggard kind of rushing at you with these claws people are getting hurt but it's Lester that's the moment that's the, oh, we got to get out of here. This, this is too much, man. <laughs> I, I know about ghosts. This is weird. I don't like it. Yeah. Also, with, with Evangeline, you can uh, you can have some players that very much try to not deny there's anything weird going on because they say, well, that didn't happen around me. I didn't see that. And you could then play up into that by saying that when you when they go back to the scene of the, uh, the incident, everything's perfectly normal. There's no blood on the walls or there's no body lying on the floor. It's all been reset. But when you've got 
half a dozen odd Leicesters all wanting to shake your hand and say, how are you doing? Then that's the point where no one can deny that there's something weird going on. So if you've got some players that do retreat into that kind of, no, no, I'm in, I'm in the longest river in Egypt. I'm in denial. I'm just going <laughs> to completely ignore what's going on. That's the point where you say, no, that tactic ain't going to work from this point on. Right. And it, that is it such has, a good, like, wham. It, it's worked lovely at the table. Because one, one of the things I do is I have the artwork for each NPC uh, on a separate laminated sheet that I've printed out. And so when they when they meet them, I say, you know, he looks a little bit like this and drop it on the table. And then I have half a dozen of Leicester printed ready so that when <laughs> one of them arrives at the door and there's a guy at the door, he looks a bit like this and then this and then this and then this. And they can see the table filling up with all these with all these printouts of the single Leicester portrait. That is a very That's effective great. use of handouts. I'm just imagining whenever I try to run it, I want to have each of them operating kind of independently for each other. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure Lester would like to shake your hand. All their heads turn in unison and they start just going as one cohesive thing. That gives me big get out vibes. <laughs> one of us. <laughs> Are there any other key events that you should uh, these player characters should encounter before the game ends? Um one that I really wish they uh, would meet, not all groups do it, is I wish they would go down into the basement and mm. find uh, find the Linwood's bodies down there. And this is my question that I had dog-eared for this discussion. Where is the door to the basement? Because it's not on the house map, and I, I tried searching for it and couldn't find it, so I need it here now on the record. Page 40, <laughs> last line of the description of the hall, there is a telephone on the wall next to the door to the basement, and everyone misses that line. Son of a <laughs> Because I've, I've seen load of people ask online, where's the telephone? It says in the description of the hall where it uh -oh. is. <laughs> so it would be somewhere near where the dining room and library kind of intersect? Or is yeah, it behind the stairs where it says up to second floor? It's the wall that runs under the stairs. So it's affected that partition. So you've got the, the door, the staircase is under the stairs like it would be in a normal house. And that wall space that's all woodline paneled, it's on there. You say that assuming I've been in houses that have stairs to the basement. I'm from Texas, pal. Like, that's it. Uh, oh, okay, great. I'm going to annotate my map. So now I know. Because, yes, I love the, like, these clawing, scrambling bodies to find in the basement. And then, like, especially if they find the maid at the top of the stairs, be like, did you need anything? Like, that's another great one. I wished we would have encountered the basement in my playthrough. One of the best moments I remember from uh, from playing it through happened down there. That one one of the aforementioned uh, gangsters with a Tommy or bank robber with a Tommy gun went down there, and he went past one of the boxes that had uh, contained lots of Veronica's old dolls from when she was uh, from her childhood. He hears this creaking. He turns around and sees all the dolls leaning out of the boxes, looking towards him. Yeah. <laughs> He flips his ship without having to make a sand roll and just opens up with a Tommy gun, blowing dolls, pieces all over the basement. That's a great scene. Another great scene is when you kill the maid and mm -hmm. like in the aforementioned, she gets hit by like a train and then the maid walks in and starts cleaning up the, the mess. <laughs> yeah, or just, or just walking past it without, without even realizing, maybe squashing a, a limb of hers on the way. Ah, oh, steps on one of her eyeballs that fell off. It just on the floor yeah. oh my god <laughs> i left that with plenty of uh, scope that the keeper could go full on they see what's there and go ah self-realization ah! and then promptly get killed again so until the point where they suddenly appear somewhere else and don't see the gore so you could have these piles of bodies littering the house or you could pull the very uh, traditional 
uh, oh, there's nothing there when you look back. You can have it anywhere in between those two, either end of the scale. Out of curiosity, in your playthroughs, you know, we wreck havoc on all of these kind of mirages of the former residents of the house. Have you ever had Evangeline or others actively attack the PCs themselves if they may need a little kick in the seat from the shapeless one to try and get things moving again? Exactly for that reason. That yeah, if they start to dither, if particularly also if I'm running it as a convention scenario, it's a great way to keep the pace moving and to push mm. them on forward, rather than having them sit down in a room and say, right, well here's all the th- or here's all the clues we've got. We're going to sit down for half an hour and discuss what's going on and try to formulate a plan. No, she rushes through the wall and smacks you against the other side of the room. <laughs> it's it's a way to get them moving and actually embrace the fact there is a sense of urgency and that you you need to act now. You hear a ghostly, get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> Statler and Wardle cry from the rafters. What, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> so this shapeless one is not just illusions. There's an actual sort of physical aspect where it can manipulate too, just in case you really need to smack someone. To a degree, because it's using the PCs, their own sensations against them. So it's more of making them think they are being pushed so they move accordingly. So that's why whenever it attacks someone, it uses their own fighting skill against them. Right. And it's oh. it's always the reflection of the PC stats which you use, which has also uh, got that kind of what the hell's going on moment when I, as the keeper, say, okay, I'm go- going to attack you. What's your uh, fighting brawl skill again? And then roll roll the dice. Well, that's then when they go to attack it. Oh, yeah, what, what's your dodge skill? Oh, yeah, I'll roll that now. Stop hitting um, yourself. Stop hitting yourself. That is a great demonstration of how a mechanic can reflect on what's happening in the story. That's really interesting, too, is I just sort of where my brain is going is kind of in the like where you can get injured in the Matrix. Like it's even though it's technically all in your head, it's if your brain perceives that damage is happening, it can make it reflected, too. Or just have yourself run headfirst into a wall because you imagine something is coming up and shoving you in there. Yep, that that was very much something that was in my kind of in the back of my mind while I was putting this together, trying to put the mechanics in place to support everything that was happening in there. Because when when you're dealing with illusions and such like that, you have to really think around the the edges of what exactly is the limitations of this thing possible. Because what happens if they do this? Wouldn't they break that? What happens if they do this? Wouldn't that maybe cause some problems? You have to really think through lots of scenarios of what PCs might do or what they might try and then put a set of mechanics in there that fit that whole package together. And out of curiosity, because we've talked about a lot of sort of the big ticket events, um, and Alex, stop me if you would want to include this in reanimation, but are there any moments whenever you tend to have reality blink in? Like that's they they get these brief glimpses through this veil that they're perceiving. I imagine it sort of breaks down with us. It happened after the ritual. And then we see that we're in this abandoned house and blah, blah, blah. Um, But like, are there any trigger points whenever you would like go into the kitchen? And I keep thinking like they start sneezing like crazy, even though this house is perfectly clean, Uh, like their allergies are going crazy or seeing other things where it's like this feels decrepit. And then it's back to normal, uh, just with more of those details kind of thrown in. Yeah, again, I try to pepper them in fairly lightly. the The initial hint is the rat in the bowl of uh, the bowl of stew in the kitchen that it runs out from its nest, goes across the floor, and then hides in the pantry. Um, the next one will be at the end of the dinner where you've got that sudden flash and realise the room's empty and that the house is decrepit. Because again, that whole point is the crux between kind of Act Two and Three, where it's the 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 fact that you know that there's something wrong with the house and everything you're seeing is wrong because of these whole 20 different versions of Leicester turning up. 
But then on, on top of that, the icing on the cake is, no, this house is decrepit and it's empty. And then it flashes back to what you've seen as per the rest of the scenario leading up to that point. Hmm. Have you ever run into issues because a big aspect of this are the puzzles that are kind of spread throughout and how they lead into the final ritual? Have you had problems where players are really just struggling with figuring out these magic squares? <laughs> I've had some instances where they haven't even bothered trying. That hmm. they're they're not essential. They're if anything, they are I guess an added almost like side quest in the in the overall narrative. The only real thing that I put them in there for is a that they are a real thing that they are uh, sigils built from Kamiya are occult practices, and it, can, it leans into the fact there are magic squares in the back of the book, uh, the book of the sacred magic of Abrabel and the Mage. That it is something that would have been put on there to create a ward, and that it just happens to be something that you could make a puzzle out of trying to decipher what that sigil means. So putting it in there as a way to find out what these words are when you have these four initially disparate words you then think oh actually there is a common theme that runs between all four of these and when you then see the four words written in veronica's journal upstairs you suddenly then know all right that's what these four things mean that they are the they are the parts of the ward but then also you have the clue in the book which states that they take the faces of the uh the cherubim and then if you make your connection through the Bible, they have the four faces, well, the eagle, the ox, the lion, and the man. You go, hang on a minute, I've seen those four items downstairs, and they've got these weird things written all over them. That It's just an, it's another hook to potentially make them think that's where the four items are, or to at least identify them as being something significant. You don't, you don't have to solve, uh, solve them to... It's not essential to solve them to uh, complete the scenario. And I had in at least one, uh, one playtest situation where one player actively refused to do it because they hate puzzles. <laughs> so that's where I put the uh, the alternative method of solving it. You can just have a combined roll with your int and your occult and, and re uh, reduce it to a dice roll if you really want. So you don't have to you don't have to make the players go through this is how you construct it and therefore these are the word choices and then you've got to try and find the word that fits the fits the pattern. It's not essential. And I'm, I was quite... Uh, again, quite conscious that there are players out there that really don't like solving puzzles, but they still like playing playing a role-playing game that is about investigation. So what would you say the end game is? Like, the, the climax? Mm -hmm. the, the, the climax isn't something I wanted written in stone to say this is the one way it plays out. Mm -hmm. It's all about how the players react to the situation once they have enough of the pieces in their minds to be able to realize there's a particular action that they want to do one of the this might be skipping ahead to war stories but there was a fantastic playthrough that i had where the group split up we had one group that had gone upstairs and were reading the journals at the same time the other group were downstairs taking the uh the different parts of the ward to the kitchen so they could scratch off the uh, scratch off the kamea and drop them into uh -oh. the drop them into the pot in the kitchen to try and melt them because lead has a fairly low uh, low melting point. And you could see the look on the, or the expression on the player's face when they said, look, we've just done this, we're melting this thing, as they're then upstairs getting the handout that says, oh, this is what these things are. And you could see, oh, shit, what, the, what have we just done? That was an amazing moment for me when this, this perfect snatching defeat from the jaws of victory right there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I tried to think realistically as... 
um, going from basis on a lot of the playthroughs I did, what actions players would take and how that would influence the shapeless one's response to it and crafted it's crafted the end of the scenario as well if they do this then this is the likely response that this is going to have if they do another course of action this is the likely response that it's going to have so it could be a whole range from they just let the thing go either by accident or by intent or they decide no, we're going to try and uh, we're going to try and banish this thing and send it back to uh, either back to hell or rather back to the court of Azathoth. Uh, any major option that they have available to them, even down to we're not going to do anything and just sit here and uh, blow raspberries at you and say, well, we're not we're not your puppets. We're not going to dance for you. That it covers all those major angles of these are the types of things that PCs had done. In, pre, in the prior playtest to try and cover all bases that was likely going to come up. I don't like scripted endings. I very much like the uh, like the GM to have potentially guidance on where to go if PCs do X, Y, and Z, but never say this is the end of the scenario. This is just mm. the reactions to what the PCs do. Excellent. So now that we have the whole picture, what would we say is the beating heart of the scenario? What the themes... I suppose that the main thing for me is it's illusion because there's not much of that that's happened in Call of Cthulhu scenarios before. It's very much when when you walk into a walk into a temple or walk into a beast's lair or walk into a crime scene, what you see is what you get and what you see is all true. That there's there's no real other scenarios I can think of where everything that you see from the start is a lie and that it's all this crafted construction this illusion designed to manipulate you into doing a particular course of action uh, so that's that's very much the heart of it for me is that it's something that i hadn't really seen done before oh I mean, it's appeared in other genres before it's appeared in other stories but it hadn't really had its had a place in call of cthulhu yet and i wanted to really really kind of tread onto that ground excellent anything from lex or nathan i I feel so torn that you just said that the puzzles were just a side quest that's completely optional <laughs> because that is by far my favorite aspect of this scenario. I very rarely ever see puzzles included in Call of Cthulhu and other sorts of investigative scenarios. I mean, short of the mystery itself. Um, and I felt like this one did it very well. Sometimes it feels a lot like a speak friend and enter door in D&D, but this one felt like it mattered. It felt like it embedded itself very well into the narrative. And I always say, if someone asks if they want a scenario that has puzzles in it, I'm like, look no further. Um, that's one of my favorite aspects of it, in addition to the illusions and the reality breaking down around them. Nathan? I really like the deep dive into the occult that is there with uh, Matt. You always do a lot of research for your scenarios, and this definitely has that feel of there's a lot of depth behind these to go look into rituals. What are the costs? What are the dangers? And I think that's one of the best parts of this is you really see the danger of using magic in Call of Cthulhu mm -hmm. and not being careful with wording. <laughs> I wanted to make it as accurate as possible, as I said, that it's very much you see magic and ritual in a mythos sense, but you rarely see it in an occult sense. So that was that was nice. And I loved using the sort of Christian occult mythos that all of these things can seem familiar, but very Old Testament bent in a way mm -hmm. that it should be a little unnerving to people, especially if they feel very familiar with Christianity and things there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot here that stems from uh, stems from Jewish 
uh, belief as well, because uh, Abraham of um, of Worms was a uh, was a Jew himself. Hmm. But thinking of a, a little tangent, because um, as I mentioned, that puzzles you don't see many of them in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, there is another scenario of mine which is in the process of hopefully seeing the light of day fairly soon, which also has some uh, some puzzle aspects in it, which you might like. So keep keep an eye out for uh, the Idol of Cthulhu, the the long awaited uh, result of a Kickstarter that was done a few years ago, Ooh. which has uh, which has a physical prop involved in that puzzle as well. I played it. Ooh. Yes, yes, you have. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, all right. So we're, before we get into reanimating this scenario, we'd like to contextualize our general experience histories with Saturnine Chalice. I have only watched it on ITV. Oh, never get the chance to play now. That's all right. I was in one of those playthroughs on ITD and have been waiting for a chance to run it. And I've watched it multiple times because they're up to nine playthroughs on ITD. Matt, you ran the first, obviously, but I think it's safe in saying it's a favorite of the club. I wonder if Tom just says Lester Goodman things in his sleep at this point, running it eight <laughs> times. You can probably run it without even citing the text. He's gone through yeah, I, I know I got to the point where I could run it without having any notes in front of me, just the occasional prompt and handouts, and that was that was about yeah. it. <laughs> and Matt, what, what's your general experience? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wrote the damn thing. Yeah. No, I, I playtested it through. I had such a blast with it because... One of the things that I uh, do in the early versions of playtesting is I come to the players and say, right, this is the premise of what this uh, scenario is designed for. I mean, uh, Mike approached me to write a scenario that would be uh, accompanying Deadlight, and they wanted the theme kept in that it's something that can happen to you on the road between point A and point B. And I think it was actually him that suggested one of the options as a faulty fuel gauge. So I ran with that to say, right, you're stranded in the middle of nowhere and this is the place that you go for, for the gas to get your yeah. car back on the road. So you could drop it into any scenario, which meant that you could have any group of investigators in that situation. So I tried to have as many varied and different groups um, that approach this. Um, the default version that these days I kept as this is the group of pregens that I use in a convention scenario is you're a group of uh, criminals that have just pulled off your first bank job in Arkham and you're now on the run in your beaten up van with a whole load of money in the back and a, uh, one of you's got a Tommy gun. Go for it. So that puts people in a very kind of Reservoir Dogs uh, mindset. Uh, you have very a very gritty crime uh, drama starting off with. Then other groups uh, examples of what they did were we had a, uh, we had a group of tra travelling jazz band stroke con artists that were just going grifting from one town to the next playing whatever uh, playing their music and almost doing a blues brothers rip off trying to gain as much money on the way oh um, i was thinking saturnine like it hot not blues brothers <laughs> ah, <da> <laughs> well i think thinking of keeping it hot one group were a whole bunch of nuns that turned up mm -hmm. basically traveling to, <laughs> traveling to their new convent <laughs> How many runs have you had? Like e easily in easily like twenty plus by now. Oh I'm my so, god! So often. That's what I say. I can run, I can run this in my sleep if I just pick up the handouts out of my. I keep all my scenarios in a box, or diff their own separate document boxes. I just pull the document box on the shelf. Um, they're all laminated, so I make sure that I w wipe them down before I put in uh, put them back in after the last use. There Drop them out on the table. They're all they're far out the piece uh, the PC sheets. 
and then boom, I'm in straight into it. I don't, I hardly have to look up anything in the book anymore. You keep That's a stack a of laminated tip. Lester Goodman's in your wallet, even just ready anytime. <laughs> All right, I think it's time to move on to reanimation. So overall, how do we highlight the beating heart of the scenario? I think really capitalizing and drawing out those inconsistencies and those little things. Again, I'm definitely going to start pinning these things on a map. And just as players are moving through areas of the house to sort of, it, it seems like it's a weird house. The people act a little funny. Drawing on, they seem kind of weird. And then as they go through the house, keep dropping those little details. Just be like, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Okay, this is all really fucking weird. And really try and build to that. Yeah, that will definitely highlight the theme of illusion, how we're just slowly going from off kilter and then just full-blown insanity with a party of Lester Goodman's. Keeping that kind of lore, Matt, you'd mentioned that there was a seraphim picture at the top of the stairs. Having that sort of biblical angle from the beginning is a good way to keep people in that sort of mindset of angels and whatnot. I could I would even consider adding some extra events like you said you wanted to use those pictures right how about have those PCs walk into one of those pictures but they can't go further than the visual <laughs> what you see in the painting or that I was so... thinking have the one portrait of Evangeline start looking like the ghostly one like if they go back to it they see it there she jumps out like have that for a good jump scare bit <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's straight out of the nun. I love that. <laughs> now, Matt, now that you're a more experienced GM, would you go back and change anything about the scenario, add anything extra? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably add a few more encounters. So one of the one of the things that you, I've, I constantly run against as, as a writer is word count. Mm. Um, that there's always a set limit or word count from a publisher if they want a particular scenario to be X or Y length because then it runs into their production costs if you overrun. So you're always working to very tight constraints. And I find if I would try to put more encounters in there, I'd have to be quite sparing on wording or phrasing earlier in the this description and background of the scenario to try and tighten it up to allow that space. So it's it's a very delicate line of wanting to put more encounters in there but sacrificing room of other parts of the scenario to make it fit. Are there any that you can add verbally now that we can recommend to others? <laughs> yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that I've, but at least nothing that occurred in playtest that I thought, oh, I really wish I could get that in the, um, in the scenario. I think I covered all the main moments that really stood out to me. I managed to get in the text. I think if there was anything else that happened, you could probably build on. Oh, there, there is there is one thing, actually, my bad, that would be more a correction to make. I mean, it all depends on the timing of when you set the scenario. Because uh, one of the things I always put to players is, okay, whenabouts in the 1920s do you want this to be? What time of year do you want it to be? What, what Let's say what month and what exact date do you want this? And then you can use that date to pin down when the uh, uh, when they would have died, because it's all dependent on which uh, times of the year when this ritual can start. It all, it all relates to Passover. That if they've picked a date which is significantly distant from the last possible time when they could have died, the petrol that you could eventually find in the garage might not even be usable, because it's only good for about six months. <laughs> 
So there is that time when you think, hang on a minute, even though we've we've succeeded this uh, succeeded the scenario, we still can't get out of here because there's still no fuel that Talk we can use. About a loaded we... question. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I have two, one idea, and then one just sort of a conversation starter. I really like the idea that this uh, the shapeless one had a few failed attempts to do this and like that this is not the first group of investigators that has gone into this house and just one of my thoughts would be as they're driving up the driveway there's this low squat flat rock walls on either side of the drive as they're approaching the house and then as they leave after the illusion is shattered they see that it's all these old decrepit cars that have been sitting out and rusting that oh, it just brings great. them up and like maybe there's more bodies piled in the basement that it's just nope or in the well or something like that that it's okay try again damn it like it's tried to use the stick <laughs> and now it, it's learning how much carrot it needs to use beforehand yeah the line of cars oh my god lex that's haunting uh, I like that one. And then just another idea, because this is uh, I am currently tweaking Deadlight to run it as like an 80s or 90s Christmas scenario. So it's a family that's traveling upstate to like go to Christmas with mom instead. So then have that be the group of investigators in the car. Uh, but are there any non 1920s time frames that you would want to consider moving this to? Ooh. If you would, just in general. I always prefer to do modern because it's easier for me to just have contextual stuff to pull from. Yeah. Um, it would have to be to fit the to fit the real world history of the book having been published, you'd have to go from at least eight, I think eighteen ninety-five, I think, or somewhere around that date when the original Mathers book was uh was released. So any time after that, in theory, is fair game. Uh the 20s was just the default setting because that's like the classic era for Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. I would be wary of putting it too far into the uh, towards the modern day, just because of technology lines of communication that it becomes a bit harder for people to suddenly realise. Hang on a minute, you haven't uh, you haven't paid your electricity bill for so long, or you you haven't replied to any of our mail that's built up. There's more likelihood that someone is going to have noticed that something has gone wrong in the house and it would attract attention. It's so, a line of electricity maintenance cars from people trying to <laughs> shut off the power. <laughs> yeah, well, loads of people that have turned up on the door saying, hey, we've been trying to contact you about the extended warranty for the car you've got in the garage, that really expensive thing. But yeah, I'd probably be wary of setting it any further than maybe the end of the Second World War, because after that it becomes a bit too a bit too much the modern era. But if you can think of ways to get around those those problems, like say having the line of cars that just sat there that happen to be bushes, stones, or pieces of pieces of furniture, then you don't you don't have to worry about it. But yeah, in theory, that that's just me. I'd I'd go to the end of the Second World War. But if you can go further, knock yourself out. Well, what I was really thinking is, you know, this this thing is basing its image of the house off of memories that were going to be pulled from the butler and from. Um, Oh my God, I just blanked on her name. Not Evangeline, the other one. Veronica. Veronica, that's it. Um, that, you know, it's pulling memories from there. And this is sort of two things. I imagine that it pulls memories from back to front. So starting with her earlier ones. 
and it really made me imagine Veronica. It, its personality of her is a lot more like a little kid that she looks like an adult because it has that image, but it only kind of downloaded the early memories of her. And the butler and maid kind of raised Veronica while she was kind of alone in the house most of the time. So if she would be just a little bit kiddish and to give a little bit of an odd feeling there, but then if you set this in the 70s or 80s, but all of the furniture and decor is straight from the 60s. Like you have that awful pea yellow and the green and everything that's got around that like the decor is more recognizably just a little bit too old uh like to still be decorated in this way i, I just feel like it, it's hard to have that context when you get into 1920s it's just like ah this looks like it's from the great war uh-huh when was that at least to me <laughs> it's you do you said it in the 70s and it's 50 shade 50 shades of beige <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, have you had players actually get a good vision from the cupola of the shapeless one? Because it's kind of hanging out there, right? Yeah, a few people head up there. Not many of them pass their roles to to spot it in the um, in in actuality, or at least in playthroughs. I think maybe a quarter of people that would go up there actually notice it. Some people go, "That's weird." and then just back away slowly and they kind of ignore it. <laughs> Others try to then get everyone else up there, by which point it's then either moved or the fact that it goes deliberately goes completely invisible so they can't see it to add another layer of, Man, did you really see something up there? Is is something actually going on here? But yeah, it's just it's a nice piece of foreshadowing if they get to see it and they realise what, what exactly it is they're up against. But yeah, it just doesn't happen all the time. Do you see the uh, the shapeless one ever giving out other kind of boons other than seeing the face of god which i want to note the nuns should have all accepted and if they didn't they're bad nuns <laughs> I, I think that was one instance where we did have a not a tpk but a total party insanity at least as they <laughs> they all went off to go and see their new god but you know there's there's a few things i think people have asked for um, that wasn't to see the face of god i think they some wanted either their memories back or they wanted knowledge uh, they wanted power, but they didn't want that particular thing they had on offer. So that there was it's very rare that people ask for that. But there was one session where it was they definitely had a whole bargain uh, going on with this thing mm. to potentially say, well, if we let you out, what are you going to do for us? And they really they really went into the go, well, what's what's in it for us kind of uh, mentality. I 100 percent imagine this thing is like, what's in it for us? like rams him <laughs> against the wall like, i don't need you i don't have time for this right now anyone, anyone else want to negotiate <laughs> so what have you found to be the most entertaining bunch of pregens you've given the players because i can see how it can be a very big impact on how they approach this scenario from gangsters to nuns even like a family camping trip would, would be a lot different. Yeah, like the, the favourite group, I think, would have to be the bank job. The um, the way I've set it up between them is you've got one that is kind of Mr. Angry, the, or the, as I describe him, he's the, he's the guy with the anger management problems and a shotgun. Oh, okay. And here's your, uh, your quiet and brooding one with a Tommy gun. And they've all got different reasons as to why they've got involved in things. They've all got different reasons as to why things went down and went south at the bank job. So you've got a degree of interparty conflict there already. And that then you send them in with a with an agenda and weapons to do what they think are going to be a whole load of damage to something, which ultimately is they're just firing at thin air. And when they can fire at something, it's just 
light. You're not going to hit it. You're not going to you know, do any damage with a gun or anything physical. So it's pulling the rug out from under and thinking, oh, we got, we got weaponry. No, we might as well just have paper swords. It's for all the good it's going to do. I love that the thing has no idea how guns work, though. So it's like gun goes and then it <laughs> might have Evangeline, like either it just pat seems to pass right through her or, you know, like she just buckles down and it's like it. there's this weird just kind of hole in her, but no real wound because it doesn't know what damage may look like to humans. And then mm -hmm. I also love the idea if they use the shotgun, they go back to the wall and it's fine that there's no damage to it, that it just kind of re-renders. <laughs> that's great why thank you do we want to move on to war stories i want to hear all of matt's war stories since he's had 20 plus runs yeah i'll say there's a lot of them uh i've mentioned a, my, my three big ones that i remember are things like the uh the doll and the tommy gun encounter down in the basement that's one that stuck in my memory the um the separating well what one group realizes what to do with the wolves as the other group are destroying them um so one the the one other big one that really uh sits with me is that the final encounter where they decided we need to try and bring all the wards together and uh in the one physical spot so that it has nowhere to go and it banishes it back to the court of azathoth one group had a really bad set of roles when it decided to hit them with its um with its power that it could grant them visions that would drive them insane. Um, I put in the text that if you're running this as a one-shot scenario, go ahead, the gloves are off, you can do whatever you want. But if it's a, um, if it's a group of pre-existing investigators, maybe go a little bit easier on them and do little creatures that might only have a little sand loss. So when it's a, like a convention scenario, I always hit them with a vision of the Court of Az Azathoth. Mm -hmm. Mainly because it's a D10, D100 sand hit, and I love the Court of Azathoth. I think it's one of the best things in the, in the mythos. And yeah. three of the four, uh, the four investigators at that point went completely and irrevocably insane. They they all failed their sand check, lost D hundred, and were wibbling on the floor. And the one PC that was left had the lowest power as he tried to bring these things together, and then go up against the the shapeless one and couldn't pass his power his opposed power check because he hadn't got enough power to bring the shapeless ones. Uh, pow down to a range that was within human limits for him to uh, to fight so everyone else goes was insane around him and he had no way of getting out of the scenario alive so it was almost a case of them fade to black as you suddenly realize that yeah this thing's just going to leave you there to die of starvation if it doesn't drive you mad first well at least he has good company yeah <laughs> And the wibble, next wibble, wibble. batch that comes along, it's going to be very easy. All the stuff is right there in the room. They just got to squish it together. <laughs> the maid, oh, come here and help me with this. <laughs> and I'm gone. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Excellent. Now, you mentioned campaign play a bit, but are there any ideas to potentially expand this scenario? Yeah, this this was one of the things that uh, Mike was definitely interested in, that he wanted to make sure that there was threads that you could go on to potentially explore this afterwards. And oh, Lester Goodman's out there. He's a definitely unresolved thread. There's something odd about him. You could have him turn up in a scenario of yours, maybe as a, a very demonic or deal with the devil type of character that's, hey, I've got this thing you want. What what do you want to... Uh, what, what will you give me for it? Mm. You've got the, the shapeless one, if it escapes... Um, if it doesn't just go back to the court of Azathoth, but if it escapes into the surrounding countryside, you go, I hate humanity with a passion. How am I going to fuck them up? At which point you've then got a whole 
but the canvas is completely open to you as the GM. What does it? Where does it go? What does I it? I feel do? like that's a world-ending threat. It just takes some information from an important person and then can uh, manipulate reality. No, it's it is only one single entity, and it only has a limited range in which it can mm. affect these things. But if it goes to the right people and has the right effect on them, then yeah, it can cause a whole load of havoc. May not may not be world ending. Maybe if you set it closer to the uh, closer to the likes of the Cold War, and it arrives in uh, Kennedy's Kennedy's office as he's dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and makes him uh, makes him believe that one of his advisors has come in and says the missiles are launched quick. Uh, someone oh, might no. be forced to then push the button. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that could be a that could be pretty horrendous uh, ending for them. Oh, that could definitely be something that, like, whatever the town they were driving to, their destination, it goes dark. And they know that they let this thing out and that everyone in this town is going to be compromised. I just finished watching uh, When Evil Lurks. And so just imagining everyone going completely batshit insane. At, but then whenever they get past that little bubble, it's all fine. What are you worried about? <laughs> Have you seen anyone follow up with the Beacon of Chaos? Because that is something that they could take. Hmm. Yeah, they they could potentially take it. Um, I have actually used the uh, the beacon in another uh, another scenario. Um, it was actually in the Into the Darkness run through of Two Headed Serpent that we had uh, one of the characters, I believe it was um, Jason Melanchok's PC, uh, went off and met Lester Goodman, and was uh, given one of the uh, given the beacon as a little thing to play with. And I don't think he actually did anything with it because in the course of that, he would have to have spent the best part of 12, uh, 1,200 magic points to be able to get it to activate. So it was more of a case of, I've got a weird item. I don't necessarily know exactly what it does, apart from the occasion I feel a little weak and woozy around it. But it's, it was a nice little Easter egg to drop in and maybe if uh, maybe if those pulp characters appear in another scenario at some point, uh, maybe if I run the other scenarios from the pulp through the rulebook, that he might get along the line. So how how many magic points have you tried putting in this thing, Jason, over the course since we last played Toyota Serpent? <laughs> I'm smelling a new green box item. Nah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The same shapeless one would appear again, too. So if you get rid of him, if, you know, 18 months later, you just drag him back out. I, I can't imagine he's going to be terribly happy. So the, the mythos equivalent of cherry calling someone. <laughs> we hope our deranged utterings are helpful in bringing this game to life at your table. You can join the autopsy discussion on Discord and subscribe or follow the podcast to hear more gruesome cases. You can find more of Matt's work in Chaosium's upcoming scenario anthology, Mentions of Madness Volume 2, and the good friends of Jackson Elias at BlasphemousTomes.com. Be sure to check out the show notes for links on where to find the scenario, where to find us, and other links for things like handouts, actual plays of this scenario that we recommend, and other resources. So until next time, thanks for listening to RPG Reanimators. Where your games can die. Or live. On the table. Oh, it's the helicopter coming. Whoop, 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 ah. whoop. <laughs> <laughs>